Welcome to another episode of Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me with me, Raymond Nakamura. Now, you may have just finished listening to a previous episode, but in fact, it's been about two years since we recorded the last one. And we now find ourselves in, as they like to say, unprecedented times. So we thought we'd try things a little differently. I'd like to welcome you to the Nikkei Theatre, located between your ears and the back of your mind, in the corridors of your memory and your imagination. Now please join me in welcoming the host for the upcoming season of Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me, Stories from the Stage. Kunji Markikeda is the artist and creator of Sunsei the Storyteller, and in these exciting new episodes he's going to be meeting artists from across Canada as they share their visions for the future and their experiences as Japanese Canadian artists. Lights up as we welcome Kunji Markiketa. The lights slowly spread on the stage, and there I am, center center. I'm wearing a flowing purple kimono, and as the lights come up, my movements start to attach to a pre-recorded welcoming speech, telling you how honored I am to be here, to be a part of this community, to be in the role of having my thoughts spread through art, and, and being able to eventually host other artists. And as this welcome message continues, all of a sudden, a piston in the center of the stage shoots me up impossibly high, up into the rafters. And as our gazes travel up, you see that the canopy above us is filled with tree branches that wildly large majestic trees are reaching in all directions that leaves are all flowing together and the way that the light hits them casts those beautiful shadows that glimmer and shine and shift and as you lose me up in the branches all of a sudden the floor under your feet opens up and there's a river running under your feet and now it's, it's low enough that if you don't want to touch it you can you can pull up your feet comfortably but if you do want to touch it you you can reach down and feel the cool swirling waters and then a projection appears on the back wall of an old saying no person can walk through the same river twice because not only the river but also the person is going to change inevitably. And as those words fade away, suddenly there I come, spiraling down, uh, holding on to some kind of vine, almost George of the Jungle style, swirling, spinning, uh, revolving over the audience, over the stage, in a wide arcing circle, before finally dropping down onto the stage. A huge, alive smile on my face as I then move to stage right and, and bring out a large wicker chair, one of those basket seats, 
and I plop myself down, crisscross applesauce, gazing out at the audience in this beautiful forest river scene. And the lights are up, and here I am. My name is Kunji Ikeda, and these are my stories from the stage. So, Kunji, can you tell us about how this idea came about? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Raymond. Uh, this whole idea was sprouted by you and Carolyn and, and those who created this original podcast. And as I started to listen to it, I, I got more and more excited about different aspects that I either didn't know about or didn't know as much about. And it wasn't until I did artistic work around my family history that I really started to recognize how many, how many points of entry I had into the Japanese Canadian culture. And so it got me curious of different artists and different artistic works that have revolved around the Japanese Canadian experience and, and really questioning if those experiences were at all related and could shine some light on the greater community of, uh, of us as Japanese Canadians. Well, that sounds wonderful. It's, it's especially heartening to hear that you were listening to the podcast since <laughs> Alexis and I started it at the beginning and later on, Carolyn uh, and, I, and others were, were carrying on with it. It's usually just us who are, are talking and we don't really know who, who is listening <laughs> and so forth. So it, it's, it's great to hear that. And it's interesting as well because you have your own particular background and take. As you said, you've done artistic work on that. Maybe we can uh, explore a little bit more about that and, and uh, what kind of artistic work you do. Absolutely. Uh, so normally I don't do podcasts, uh, which is really lovely to have this now kind of audio artifact of this moment in time. Uh, but usually I do theater and dance. And my favorite form is when they get mashed together uh, to tell part of the story through theater and part of the story through dance, often contemporary dance. Uh, and in that way, I really feel like it welcomes the audience in. It has different entry points for different points of intrigue. And I really love the moments in life where it feels that, that words are inadequate. And so during those moments, you know, it, it's the same as the, the moments in the musicals that they burst into song because there's something about our words that don't do it justice. And, mm -hmm. and so that's what I love about the mixture of forms. And so throughout the podcast series, we'll have different both theater and dance artists to, to also unwrap what that means to them. That sounds great. I, I'm really interested in that kind of intersection as well. My, my own... Uh, aptitude is more toward cartooning, but the idea of having words and pictures filling each other's um, gaps to create a fuller experience is, is something I can appreciate in, in what you're talking about. Uh, now, this idea of your family exploration is interesting. How, how did that come about in, in your work? One of my mentors, uh, Denise Clark, always said that everyone, every artist has to explore their origin story. And, and so that meant different things to me at different times. But at, at one point, when I was really interested in trying to put 
spoken word poetry next to contemporary dance, I, I came across this poetic moment in my life, which was when my father told me that if the Japanese-Canadian internment didn't happen, he wouldn't be alive and neither would I. And so using that as kind of the inception point, I unraveled the family history and our engagement with the Japanese-Canadian internment through that poetic lens of silver linings that, you know, throughout all these hardships and turbulent times, I'm now alive and, and using the form of live theater, that also means that we are all, we can all get together in a theater to feel these expressions of, of, you know, going through turbulent grief, times, hardships, absolute poverty, and, and come out together and hopefully come out together greater in an additive way. And, and so that really, it started as, as a smaller 10, 15 minute piece and it kept growing and growing and growing. And it, it was one of those uh, artworks that really connected the audience. And immediately after, as I started to perform, I realized how many, uh, how many people that it spoke to in ways I never would have imagined. Mm -hmm. And that's really interesting in, in these times. For sure. Oh, there's so many, there's so many poetic seeds of us versus them, which really feels like one of the main seeds that was at the heart of, uh, of both the internment and how the Canadian government really tried to disband, disenfranchise the Japanese Canadian people. And, and so those, those tactics that were at play, you know, we, we've been seeing again and again ever since. Mm-hmm. And the, also the attitude, though, of finding the hope in, in the difficult situation being particularly applicable at this moment when we're recording this, the, the opportunity to be recording this, if we want to put it in that sense, uh, of creating something that will has uh, a lasting impact or legacy. Uh, the other question I was a little bit curious about is what you mentioned with your, your father saying that both... He, you and he would not exist were it not for that. And I'm curious about his uh, meaning in, in that statement, particularly for himself. Sure. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I might be giving a little bit away to my, to my one-person one show, Sansei the Storyteller, but <laughs> the, the little tidbit. Yeah, spoiler alert. Uh, my grandparents were done having children. They, they had my aunt and uncle, uh, and they were, they were very sure they were done having kids. Uh, and then when the internment happened, my grandmother and my aunt and uncle were sent to an internment camp, and my grandfather was sent to a work camp. And, and so they didn't see each other for three and a half years. Hmm. And so it wasn't until after everything that they eventually were able to get back together and move out to a tiny sugar beet farm hmm. in Nowheresville, Alberta, um, that they celebrated uh being back together and and so they had an oops baby and that was my father mm -hmm. <laughs> or maybe it's more like momotaro that that uh ah. that he emerged as a as a sugar beet yeah. <laughs> the sugar beet floated <laughs> down to them yeah. oh that's lovely. yeah that's right <laughs> <laughs> they split it open and the boy appeared yeah so um, 
so that's that's quite interesting that you have that and so you've been talking about how your work has has led you to this so you hadn't really explored a lot of your family's background prior to this like did it come out at the same time as as you were uh, developing this this work yeah that's so interesting um there would only be like snippets of japanese canadian culture that made its way to me when i was when i was growing up i don't think it's an uncommon thing but that my dad growing up at the end of world war ii in canada really tried to distance himself from his uh from any part of japanese canadian heritage mm-hmm. that was kind of a, a safety mechanism mm-hmm. and and something that was really socially reinforced mm-hmm. and and so growing up i didn't have a lot of engagements so i'd say yeah through through this artistic work i was able to have the conversations with my aunt and uncle like deeper conversations that we never had shared before this opportunity mm-hmm. um, i got to see pictures i got to see old um the old trunk mm-hmm. that they still had uh i was passed on the kimono that that i mentioned in uh that you saw on stage is is mm-hmm. my grandmother's old kimono oh really that wow. i still have yeah um, so all these, yeah, intersection points only started to happen after that, you know, the, the layers of the onion were peeled back. Mm-hmm. And, and I realized that there's more there than I had originally ever imagined. Mm-hmm. And so it's been a really revealing and, and healthy process for me to start to engage more. And, and that's also part of the inception of this podcast, that this series of podcasts to see if that rings true among my artistic peers i'm so interested to see their stories Mm -hmm. um we have we have quite a mix both of uh the generations of the practices we have artists that were born in canada artists that were born in japan and so i'm really really hungry for their stories and their engagement with what it means to be japanese canadian and and for me quite honestly it revolves around the personal question to myself of am i japanese enough mm-hmm. am i japanese canadian enough and what does that mean for me today i think that's interesting as well as an approach uh because it, it's potentially a question that a lot of people connected to the community are asking and also, I think the uh, the art form that you're discussing, or at least in many cases, the, the, the thing of dance, is maybe outside uh, a lot of people's direct experience. Although I, I should say my mother did Japanese dance and she, ah, she actually taught it. So I have this I peripheral connection and I've done tankobushi at uh, ah. festivals and things like that. But uh, I... I Oh, and I saw the Nutcracker once, and uh, so I, I think that's about You're the extent in. of my oh, yeah. my uh, dance experience. So I, uh, but I think that the insights that you'll be able to share with artists in this art form, I think, could be quite interesting as well. Yeah, I really hope so. Um, we don't have a, we don't always practice having the words around our form. Mm. One of my passions is really um, laying the breadcrumbs and and that's what i love about dance theater is i can lay the breadcrumbs of a story to you through Mm -hmm. words through something we're all Mm -hmm. very through stories something we're all very familiar with that when i then sink into this really 
emotional guttural place that I dance from mm -hmm. uh, that hopefully I can bring you along with me. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so I suppose this is also a way to, to give voice to that and, and bring words around those practices of, of where I've been dancing from and where I think a lot of these artists may have been creating from. Mm -hmm. And so again, I'm, I'm really excited to hear uh, in the, in the episodes that follow how other people give word to, to this, this practice. Mm -hmm. And in your case, how did you first get into it? What, what drew you to pursuing this, this form of art? Uh, dance in particular? Yes. Um, <laughs> a few things. I, part of it was that I wasn't getting much work as an actor. Mm. And oh, so you started in, in the theater I, in I general. Did, yeah. I see. That's right. I started as an actor and I wasn't getting a ton of work. And partially that may be because there weren't a ton of roles mm, for, yeah. for people who looked like me. Right. Um, but then also when I was given the opportunity at, to do physical theater, um, a lot of children's theater, which required me to be big and expressive with mm, my body, mm. physical language, uh, I really dug into that. Mm. And then meeting some of the mentors that I have in the dance theater world really opened the door of mm. like, hold on, like, yeah, I could deliver you a monologue or I could show you how I feel mm, mm. just by responding to my f fingers, mm -hmm. responding to like the, the impulses that, that, that don't have words. Mm -hmm. When I was given that outlet, that I was like immediately like this makes sense to me and, mm -hmm. and I feel it. And I could see just now as, as you're talking <laughs> uh, how your fingers are moving and, and your neck is tightening up and so on. That's yeah, I could see that it's a very physical aspect of, of communication. That's great. For sure. And, and it's so again, when I find dance work that consciously uh, plants the ideas, plants like small uh, whether it's the same as a musical composition that you can plant small themes early on that then get expanded on. It, there's a really lovely music composition book by Schoenberg that I started reading. And it's like, are you, you're speaking about dance right now because mm. in the same way that it's like you can plant a theme and then that's what the whole piece becomes about. Right. Dun, 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 dun. And that, tells us everything about what we're about to experience mm -hmm. and explore. And in the same way, you can do it physically. Mm -hmm. So uh, those are things that really excite me about movement and, and mm -hmm. the cross between the dramaturgy between uh, story, narrative, movement, theater. Oh, those worlds, those performative ecosystems. Mm -hmm. Just, I love and I love unwrapping and, and letting other people in on the, it's almost like a secret language and, and to let you in on the secret, to let you in on how I'm feeling is just, that's my life's work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so this format of a podcast is going to be interesting given, given <laughs> that, that it's such a physical medium. We'll almost need like a, uh, a visual description. Yeah. <laughs> So after all of your experience, and I know that it's still ongoing in, in the performing arts community, is there something, if you had a, a magic button or something that you would like to push to change, what, 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 would, what would it be? Hmm. 
yeah, good question. Um, there's so much I love about this community. Uh, all across Canada, I've been able to connect with people through arts, through dance and theater, both performing and, and as a spectator. And the one thing I think I would change is I would really increase the visibility of BIPOC artists, so Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Um, he, here in Calgary, uh, at last report, there was about 17% of the professional artists were BIPOC. And when our, 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 and when our census says that uh, in our community, there's closer to 40% uh, you know, there's, there's something missing there. And as I explained earlier, there, there weren't always stories or roles for me uh, in the performing arts. Uh, I didn't always see myself or my story on stage. And it wasn't until I started to create my own work that I have a role that, that really felt like me. So if there's one thing, I, I would say that's where the arts community can go next. And, I, and it feels like there's some momentum behind that. And I'm, again, that's why I'm so excited to speak to all these different artists uh, who have found roles for themselves or have created them. And so that conversation I think is gonna be very rich and hopefully something that the arts community is gonna be interested in, in sharing in. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that sounds, uh really exciting and it seems like the society in a larger scale is becoming more aware of these sorts of issues of representation and and people being able to tell their their stories from your perspective what what kinds of things would actually need to happen if inside our magic button what would be the mechanisms <laughs> of, of change there do, do you see being underlying well that's a huge one yeah. um there's so many stories of audiences will come to see themselves reflected on stage. And there's this myth that if, if uh, larger companies program work that isn't to their main subscriber base, mm -hmm. uh, that people won't come. Mm. And, and then, but then th there's this secondary conversation of, Oh, our, our subscriber base is getting smaller and smaller. Why is that? Mm. And, and so it seems like the, the answer is in front of us, but if you always do what you've always done, you mm -hmm. always get what you've always got. Mm -hmm. Until quite recently, what we've always got has been enough for the, the artistic community. And so it's a really exciting time right now that we can start to, to push that assumption, to, to, to push against some of those, uh, um, those biases that have continued of who is coming to the theater. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is gonna have to be a full court press from uh, performance institutions, uh, uh, training, universities and colleges, um, who's in the boardroom, you know, who is in positions to make artistic choices, who is not only, like the casts is, is one thing, but there's a whole range of artists that in many ways, our community is missing out on because as young people, they don't see themselves as, well, I can't be a, a visual artist. Well, I can't be a mm. scenographer. I can't be a stage mm -hmm. manager. That, that's not something that's in my, I never saw those opportunities until very recently. I, I realized that almost everyone who trained me 
looked the same. Mm. <laughs> Almost everyone who trained me was white. Mm -hmm. And so while that in and of itself isn't problematic, mm -hmm. it becomes a problem when I don't see myself as that's not a potential career opportunity for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting uh, opportunity in this podcast too, to be having conversations with people and, and potentially inspiring others to, to follow suit. I hope so. I think so. Them. There's a few artists that I'm, I'm going to be speaking to over the weeks that, that were really that inspiration for me of you've done it. You know, you, mm -hmm. you've made your work, you've made your company, you've made, you know, and, and hearing their stories of, well, I had to just go and do it myself. Um, that really kickstarted a lot of ideas early in my career of don't be afraid to, to be a creator. Don't be afraid to be both the playwright and the, and the lead actor because mm -hmm. you, you might not get another chance. Mm -hmm. and, and so hopefully, I, you know, they made it a little bit easier for me. And hopefully I can make it easier for the next artist to come and, and, and see themselves on stage and, and be empowered to tell their stories because our stories are worth sharing. Yeah. Now, this leads directly into the idea of if you were given the opportunity to create your dream show with an unlimited budget, what would that end up being? <laughs> what, what would you do with that? An unlimited budget. Holy. Um, there, there, I have so many shows that I want to explore uh, that really run the gamut. But, but one that I'm not sure I'll ever get the opportunity to create is, is a piece of dance theater that wraps in an orchestra. And I, I've always been really inspired by orchestral music, by contemporary classical music, there's something about the, the musicality that, that really speaks to me. And so one dream I had on early in my career was creating a piece of physical theater to accompany Gustav Holtz, The Planets. Mm. Mm. And, and so I have a, a bit of a storyline running in my mind that goes through each of the movements of The Planets. And, and so to perform that piece of dance theater with a full set, a full orchestra, video projection, uh, to really try and be additive to this masterwork is, is mm -hmm. such a beautiful challenge. And scale models of the planets. As well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's so much you can do with that. Um, yeah. That yeah. Cool. that's really a, a dream performance that I'm not sure I'll ever get to in my lifetime, but. Mm. Boy, have I been dreaming about that <laughs> for wow, a Wow, that sounds great. I, have you ever heard of the uh, Dance Your PhD contest? There's, no. there's actually a, it's a science thing where you have your actual thesis and it gets transformed into dance and there's a competition of that. So like I said, I don't, uh, my background's more in uh, science than in dance, but uh, I have seen those uh, things happening. So that might be an interesting avenue too. Oh, I would love that challenge. I, I've always loved translating different ideas into dance. Mm. And that's something I do working with schools. 
uh, and I work with kids to explore concepts from mathematics, science, language skills, and they can all be translated physically and then understood mm -hmm. in different ways. So absolutely, that would be a lovely challenge. Wow, that sounds wonderful. If you got your PhD that you need translating, you, you let me know. Okay, all right. My, mine was actually on the hydrodynamics of sand dollars. So there is movement in there. Ah, yeah, yeah that's <laughs> very evocative. <laughs> now you were just mentioning uh, teaching in schools and, and this kind of uh, other avenues, other audiences what's one piece of advice you'd give yourself when you're say when you were 10 or or even 20 mm. when i was 10 i mean quite honestly i don't know that i would listen to myself when i was 10 <laughs> <laughs> but the lesson that I, I i wish i had more of at 10 is that my experience is different than my classmates mm. and that to be aware of how I am othered and, and be aware that because I felt othered and I didn't know why, mm. I wanted to give that experience to others. And so to feel part of the majority, mm -hmm. I, I would make other kids who looked even more different from me or felt more different from me to make them feel apart from the group so I felt I belong. Mm. So I suppose the lesson... I understood was that it would be okay to feel other, to feel not part of the group mm. in some ways. And in doing so, there would be so many more opportunities to be in the group. Mm -hmm. When I didn't have to define the borders, there were so many more opportunities to connect. Mm. And I mean, I don't know exactly the right way to teach that yeah. to a 10 year old. Yeah, right. But that's what I wish I had. Wow. Yeah, that, that lesson came late to mm -hmm. me. I, I had to learn it again and again and again because wow. I kept failing at it. But that would be the 10-year-old the lesson. Had you been involved in theater? Were you interested in theater at that time? Not in a major way. Um, there, I think I was in grade six when I was, I was cast as Oliver Twist. Um, mm. And I was this tiny. You were tiny, Oliver Twist. I was Oliver Twist. Yeah, the the quintessential English young boy. Uh, <laughs> yes, but an outcast. So but, yeah, uh, so that's right. That Absolutely. So. Uh, yeah. so that fit quite well in many ways, and, and so um, that was a bit of a turning point, I suppose. Um, and then after that, you said, "I want some more, please." <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and the so rest then you is went into history. Theater. Yeah. <laughs> Well, so when, when you're 20, what do you say to yourself then? Oh, my goodness. Um, when I was 20, I, I actually I created a show in a way for my 20-year-old self. And it was called The Golden Penis. <laughs> and the, the Golden Penis was... That, that does sound like a 20-year-old thing. Yeah, it's very evocative, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, and, and it was exploring uh, male privilege toxic masculinity and and my own experiences with that and, and so at 20 i was i mean when i meet 20 year olds that aren't selfish i'm like how did you do it because mm. i was i was so worried about how i looked to others i mm. was so wrapped up in my own image and my own guise of what power meant and mm. and to finally be able to make choices and have a semblance of power 
that that I really slipped into some, I guess, some dark places. Mm. That looking back, in a way, have made me who I am, but also in a way, I'm I'm quite ashamed of of that young, short fellow when he was so wrapped up in in proving himself to be a man. Mm. Uh, I guess I, that would be the next lesson: is the different expressions of masculinity of femininity within the male uh, mm -hmm. that that both live and that your gender expressions as a, a short artistic male are no less masculine than those mm. of the the perfect prince charming version that mm -hmm. we've all been fed since we were young mm. Mm. there's a power in being you mm -hmm. uh, that when i see young people really living and grasping onto i celebrate and i mm -hmm. and i recognize that that's not celebrated across our culture but if i could be a voice to 20 year old me i think that's that's what i would say mm. i mean big lessons but uh, yeah yeah and i guess <laughs> i in, in a way it underlines the things that uh, people at different ages are wrestling with that, that you know it does take time to to get that I, I was wondering if you've always used kunji as your first name mm. or whether that was a, a conscious decision uh and and how that relates to your sense of identity great question uh yeah so so my my given name is mark and my middle name is kunji but i've i've really been resonating with Kunji for a lot of years that that feels a lot more like me um, mm. and there's something about I, it was given to me by my grandmother and my great aunt oh. who were, mm. were quite into numerology oh I see and the, they had to be very particular about the kanji used in Kunji yeah, yeah. Uh, because the strokes are connected to the strokes in my last name of, the, of my right right and so that has brought me good luck Mm -hmm. And so I've really felt that, that the more I've used Kunji, the more that spirit lives on and, and it, it just really resonates with who I am. That's interesting. And, and maybe that you've accepted that aspect of your identity and you've been more successful artistically by, by being true to yourself. Beautifully said. I couldn't say it any better <laughs> myself. Thank you. So yeah. what does uh, Kunji actually mean? It, can trans it translates to second victory. Uh huh. Uh, which has a lot well, of. That's an interesting intro. It's got a lot of poetry in it. Um, yeah. You know, my dad jokes about maybe he didn't get it right, so he needs me. Oh, as the, I see. <laughs> the second chance. Uh huh. Uh, but then oh. there's the idea also, like the poetic nature of I was using my first name, and now I need to come to the second iteration right, right, of right. self. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. There's a lot of poetry in that. Um, yeah you know, there, especially when there are conscious decisions about names or even when not, it's interesting to explore the background and, and what that can say about context. And the other thing you were saying about fortune telling and uh, number strokes, when I was in Japan, I heard about that. Mm. And so I asked them about what happens to women who change their name when they're married. Oh, yes. And so that can lead to changes in fortune for better or worse because of that. Oh, that's strokes. so interesting. <laughs> something to consider when you're getting married is, is yeah uh, <laughs> whether you're going to keep your name or not. that's yeah. right uh we have quite a range as you were saying of, of people who are dealing with 
the theatrical arts and from different parts of the country as well. Are there any other aspects of this new exciting season of podcasts that you want to highlight? I'm, I'm really excited to have this catalog of some, of some of the greatest performing dance theater artists across Canada, to have it all in one place and then be able to reference experience, to have this, uh, again, this little artifact that just as I started tuning into your podcast, probably five, six years after you began it, uh, in that same way that this moment in time might be something substantial for both artists, for members of the artistic community, members of the Japanese-Canadian community, to look back on and, and reference and be able to see connections. So more than anything, I'm looking forward to both the conversations and the opportunity to be surprised of the experiences of all these different artists and how they might relate or how they don't relate. Um, I'm, I'm really excited to be proven wrong in some of my ideas. I'm really excited to, to be reinforced in some of my own experiences. And I'm so excited to hear everyone else's version of their lights up and what they are compelled to share through this new stage. Well, that sounds great. In fact, it sounds Japanese-Canadian to me. <laughs> and so with that, I think we'll wrap up today's episode. And I'm passing on the torch to Kunji without, just be careful not to burn your fingers on it. And <laughs> I look forward to hearing the episodes in our stories from the stage. Thank you so much, Raymond. I'll, I'll be as careful with it as I can as I try to illuminate some of the other spots uh, on the stage and across our community, across the country. Uh, thank you so much for your work and thanks for the conversation today. Sounds Japanese Canadian to me, Stories from the Stage is hosted by me, Kunji Ikeda. More information about my own artistic work can be found at cloudsway.ca. My guest today and torch-passing host was Raymond Nakamura. Our opening theme and additional music came from Maze Maze, composed by Onibana Taiko and commissioned by Powell Street Festival for Powerroo Mashup. Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me is co-produced and presented by the Nikkei National Museum and Cultural Center. For ways to connect with us, to suggest other artists, or to offer feedback, we've included a few links in this podcast descriptions for ways for us to connect. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me, Stories from the Stage.